We hope everybody enjoyed our last episode with rugby league star Johnny Lomax. It was great to get insights of resilience and persistence on his journey to becoming one of his sport's best players. Today, we interview someone who had great success as a manager, but also faced numerous challenges and obstacles during his career. So without further ado, here is a snippet of what to expect today. Most people in football that I know are resilient, but I wasn't, I had no mental well-being with that resilience. And I think without mental well-being, you need to get that balance right. And that's what a lot of managers, I think is really important to look after themselves because the job is, um, I wouldn't say it's 24-7, it's probably 24-7 in your head if you want it to be, um, but not physically, because if you've got great staff around you, they're doing a lot of the stuff. You know, I had fantastic staff around me, so um, I, I, I had people who were really good at their jobs, but I did. I was the one, I reckon, that took the brunt of the result. We're excited to welcome Brian McDermott onto today's episode of the Golders Podcast. Brian was an ex-footballer who went into management after his career finished. He famously led Reading Football Club to the Premier League in 2012, being named LMA Championship Manager of the Season that year. He was also previously manager at Leeds United and his elder role as Chief Scout at Arsenal Football Club. Recently, Brian McDermott has talked about the struggles he faced during his managerial career, which he does share with us today. Good afternoon, Brian. Nice to see you both. And yeah, it's raining here, but apart from that, everything's fine. And vice versa. So listen, Brian, what we'll do, let's get straight into it. It's a question we ask all guests. To us, gold dust is sprinkling particles and knowledge to help people for the greater good. What does gold dust mean to you? Um, what does gold dust mean to me? Mine's more about creating an environment, creating culture, helping youngsters, helping people. I always try to see the person first rather than the player first. For me, that's the most important thing. Um, so, you know, as far as my coaching staff or myself, yeah, it's really important that the player's got a, an ability at a certain level, but they have if they're playing at a certain level. And then you see the person... The person, and that's the, the key for me, um, is to, to create, that's gold dust, creating a culture, creating an environment, creating a place where people feel, and coaches and staff feel safe to talk, to express ideas, and players feel safe to express themselves within the, within the structure of the team, if that makes sense. Well, Brian, in terms of culture and environments, you've been in lots of different, change your rooms and, and I'm sure lots of different cultures as well and in a in a 14 year playing career you were an apprentice pro at Arsenal and went on to play for Fulham and numerous other clubs uh, you then finished your playing career at Slough Town where you eventually became manager and then following the the sacking of Brendan Rodgers you were appointed Reading manager in, in 2009 and first season led Reading to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup and then you took Reading into the Premier League after winning the championship and then was appointed Leeds United manager for, for a period after Neil Warnock's departure. How have all these experiences helped shape you and your character? 
I don't know. It's really hard to say. I mean, it, it's. I've I've had a lot of experience in football. I've always been in football um, since I was a young boy, since I was six years of age. And it's such a broad question to talk about one's character when you're just talking about what jobs you used to do, because that's all that was. That they were jobs, you know. It was my life, but they were my job. That was my job. But unfortunately, with football, it kind of takes over your life. And um, I think for me, it's really important now to get a balance in my life between that's my job, that's my home life. And I never really got that, to be honest. I always had a little bit. And I think in football, we do that. We tilt over towards the job too much. And, you know, we think that we have to be the first to get there and the first to leave. Now, that's just nonsense. Um, you know, I, I don't look at it like that. My character is what it is. You know, am I resilient? Yeah, I'm resilient. You know, most people in football that I know are resilient, but I wasn't, I had no mental well-being with that resilience. And I think without mental well-being, you need to get that balance right. And that's what a lot of managers, have, I think, is really important to look after themselves because the job is, um, I wouldn't say it's 24-7. It's probably 24-7 in your head if you want it to be. Um but not physically, not, because if you've got great staff around you, they, they're doing a lot of the stuff. You know, I had fantastic staff around me. So um, I, I, I had people who were really good at their jobs, but I did. I was the one I reckon that took the brunt of the result. And, you know, and, and you know yourselves like losing the games like is. And I don't I don't mean to sound dramatic, but it's like a. It's like a death, you know, like a, a loss is like a death and it's, it's difficult. So I can bounce back, no problem. But it's I think bouncing back and having a good mental resilience as well as a resilience is a real key, really, I think. Well, football, as you know, it's, it's a thief. Yeah. It'll take every single second, every hour. And, and I'm sure many listening to this podcast will actually probably resonate with what, what, what you just shared and what I'm saying at the moment. When you were coming to the end of your, your playing career, Brian, were there any defining moments when you thought management was going to be your chosen profession? No, quite frankly. I just, I've never chased a job in my life. Um, I left, I finished football and I ended up, coaching kids in Slough, Town, Slough football in the community and I did it for two years and then the Slough Town job came up never applied for it they asked me to do it and I did it for two years and then I went to Woking because Slough Town went under we were ninth in the league and Slough Town went under because they didn't put enough seats in the ground so they got relegated to the uh, out of the conference went to Woking and got, lost my job there and then I got a phone call to go to Reading so I never chased it and in 2009 after Steve Coppola left, Brendan Rogers came in and Brendan lost his job in December and they asked me to be caretaker and that's it. So I never, I never chased a job in management. I, my, I think my favourite job was Chief Scout when I was Chief Scout at Reading. That's, I love doing that. I love scouting and I've scouted for Arsenal for years as well. And I still do my own stuff scouting as well. So that's probably the job that I, um, I, I, I passionately love. With that being said, I mean you you went obviously from managing a, a club in in the conference to then managing in 
the championship and then and then eventually obviously managing in the Premier League what like we talked about. And we hear a lot about it. You see it on the news, you'll see it on, on the sports channels, etc. It's easy from the outside advising on what someone should be doing as a manager, what they should be saying or how they should be treating players, what team they should be picking. If someone were to walk a mile in in the manager's moccasins, what pressures would they experience whilst working in that pressure cooker environment? It's hard to say. You, 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 you know, you're making a, it's a, it's a big generic statement about football managers. I don't know every football manager. I know me. Um, and I know what that looks like to lose. The losing for me was always a lot worse than the winning was good. When you win, you get, I got about 20 seconds, 30 seconds. I used to watch the referee with a minute to go. I didn't watch the game, watch the referee. I was just waiting for him to blow his whistle and I was going, blow that whistle, blow that whistle. And then he'd blow the whistle and the relief was absolutely like, you can't believe you get a shot of adrenaline for about 30 seconds. And then you've got to play again on the Tuesday night somewhere like a derby or forest. You've got to try and win there. So it's the same thing. So it's, it's not joy, it's relief. So you have to be able to handle that day in and day out and then game in and game out. It's And, and do you know what I would say? If you're not 100% in as a manager, don't do it. If you're 90% in, don't do it. You have to be 100% in because otherwise it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult job. Um, and it's not it's not somewhere it's not something you can do. You have to be completely in it, and uh, yeah, it's 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 tough. But you know, for me, I just like creating training grounds with a good environment. I like working with good people, and you know, I, I like to sign senior players that were top draw people. And I was fortunate enough to have top draw senior players when I was at Reading, and. And I had some top players, at, top senior players at Leeds as well at times, as well. You talk there about creating top environments. How did you do that? I know you've worked in several different several different clubs, but how, what, what would be some of the things you would go through to do so? People. Find the right people. I think you've got to invest in the right senior people. You get good staff and you get good senior people and the senior people will help the younger people. Try to get people with not a big ego. Everyone's got egos, but leave it at the door at the training ground. Um, try to create a good culture. Try to create an, a situation where the tr where the players, to a point, run the, the, the dressing room. Your senior players can run the dressing room. You don't want to be involved as a manager in every single squabble, every single thing. Steve Koppel said to me, there's 90, there's 100% of stuff. As a manager, you only need to deal with 5% of it. And he was right. You know, if you get involved with every single thing and every single issue that's going on around the training ground or around match day or whatever, it could drive you crazy. So you have to pick and choose what you, what you get involved with. But it's about people. It's about finding the right people. And that's why sometimes with me, it took two and a half years to go get promotion. When Steve's team went up, Steve Coppel, it took three years. That's why these days you get three games. It's complete nonsense. You have no chance of creating anything, never mind an environment. Well, when you're dealing with very highly competitive environments with people who are paid very well, how have you dealt with dressing rooms that are like that? Because it's okay saying, well, 
you can you know you, you sort the dressing room out you build the culture that takes time you're, you're allowing people the opportunity to build trust with you and you're going to build trust with them but when when you get some faction or there's a point or there's a loss when things are going right it's them when they ain't going right it's you because your head's on the block well i didn't see it that way at all um I didn't see it as, you know, when they were winning, it was them. And when we were losing, it was me. I never saw it that way. Um, I was one of them. I was a highly competitive person. And I wanted them to be highly competitive. And I wanted them to be highly charged in the right manner on match days. And I had that type of person, Jason Roberts, Ian Hart, Ian Hart Kasper Gorkis, you know, highly charged, highly competitive people. I wanted them. But they were good people. You know, I come back to the same thing. They were good people um, and they were earning a few quid and that's fine. But that was none of my business. It wasn't, I never did the contracts at the club, which was important. I didn't get involved in that. So I never got involved in, the, the director of football did that. And we just concentrated on trying to win the next game. And that's all I ever did. And, and, and the process of trying to win the next game. And sometimes people got upset and sometimes they got emotional. And I tried not to get involved in emotional arguments. I tried to distance myself from emotional arguments. And after things had calmed down, um, then have a conversation. I remember the playoff final. So the playoff final, we were 3-0 down at half, half time against Swansea. There was a lot of shouting and bawling for about three minutes. And when it all calmed down, I never said nothing. I didn't get involved in it. And I just said, listen, fellas, can we score a goal? And they looked at me. Yeah. Okay, can we score a goal? If we could score one goal, we could score two. And if we score two, we're in this game. Actually, we scored a goal. We made it 3-1. Then we made another one, 3-2. Honestly, the place was electric. You know, 40,000 Reading fans going mad. We hit the post to make it 3-3. Nearly won the game. Honestly, we're 3-0 down. But at half-time, it was just emotion. And you can't get involved in that. And I didn't, hopefully. And I tried to avoid that sort of emotional argument because all you can do, if, you, if you're going to go with, if you're going to go after someone with conflict, you're going to get it back. Look, a lot of this is inherent, but is it something that you, over time, have matured to be able to do that? 100%. It's easy to go in there and start throwing the cups about, isn't it? Hundred percent. I've I've seen it. I worked. I worked with Steve for about six years. Steve Coppel. I learned a lot from Steve. When I was first manager in this in the conference at Sloughtown, I was more of a person who was shouting and bawling because that's what I was brought up with. You know, I was brought up with managers shouting and I thought that was the way. It wasn't. It doesn't work. It certainly doesn't work with this generation. So uh, you, as an, as an older man, more mature man, you kind of see things differently and you talk to people differently and it's quite right and proper. Uh, and I made a lot of mistakes in my first season or so when I was managing Slough, but it was a great experience. And that's probably got me my 10,000 hours. Those, all those games, part-time football, Slough and Woking, and, and I wouldn't, you know, that's a, that's a great way to, great grounding, in my opinion. The, the actual win, really, for you lasts about 20, 30 seconds, and then you're on to the next thing because you've got another game, and losing lingered for longer. But other than the result of a game, what, and if any, were, were some key indicators of success for you personally? Well, the obvious, you know, how you perform. Sometimes you have a performance where it's really, really poor. And you know you're in trouble. You get beat two or three nil, or you get beat one nil or two, and you think we ain't, we're not right. And sometimes that's good because that sort of in your mind you think I need to make changes. 
And then there's some times where you're thinking, we're close. Uh, we're really, really close. I remember we played West Brom in a cup game at, at the Hawthorns, and it was 2-1 to West Brom, 20 minutes to go. And you can, you know when you can hear the noise of people saying, make a sub, make a sub? It's kind of coming from the bench. It's coming from the fans. You can hear it from the media. And I'm thinking, we're doing really well in this game. We're doing, you know, so you just get this gut feeling. We scored with about a minute to go to draw 2-2, two, two, but didn't make a change um, because the team were doing well. Sometimes you can, you, can, you can dismantle your team by making a poor substitution because the result's not going your way. You have to be brave enough sometimes to do nothing when the team is doing, doing a good job. Sometimes you lose football matches, but you play well. The best scenario is when you don't play well, when you win one nil. Love that, especially away from home. Makes for a makes for a nice nice journey back to the training ground. Oh, it's, it's the best win ever. One nil win, not two nil. A one nil win away from home, and you haven't played particularly well. And the opposition saying, "Are oh, you at the top of the league? You are useless." And we all go, "Yeah, you're right," and get on the bus. <laughs> Well, you mentioned something there, Brian, about you can hear a few subs, you can hear a few grumblings of people thinking you should make a sub or whatever it may be. When you're in the hot seat, so you have fans and they'll be shouting and screaming and there'll be things that are being said, does that impact decisions that are made during the game? And if not, how do you tune that out? Uh, the answer is no. Um, you can hear some stuff, but not a lot. If you're at Millwall, I had a lot of Millwall. Millwall. I used to get a lot of stick at Millwall. Um, but that was just personal towards me, which is fine. It was it was it didn't bother me particularly. Um, you might get booed for making a substitution. Fortunately, I haven't had too many boos as a manager. Um, so, no, I, I, I've never had a situation where I made decisions based on what the crowd was saying. I had to stick to what I was thinking was the best for the football club and, and the staff, the staff and I, we made decisions together. You can't be, listen, there's 20,000 people in there. Everyone's got a different opinion. If you're trying to listen to everyone, you've got no chance. So during your career in management, during times where it's been quite challenging, both on the park and off it, has there ever, ever been any occasions when you felt like where you're constantly in dialogue, chit-chat with yourself and second-guessing yourself. Has that ever occurred? And if so, how have you dealt with it? Every day. Every day. I had that as a player. I, had, I talk about it now in my presentation that I do. Every day. Um, don't feel good enough. Don't belong here. When I was playing for Arsenal, I felt like that. When I was getting promotion with Cardiff and Exeter and Oxford. Didn't, at Cardiff and Exeter, I didn't even go on the bus tour. I played in all the games. Uh, I was a key part of the, of the team and didn't go on the bus because I thought, oh, fans didn't really like me, but they did. Um, so, yeah, I've definitely had that and I've had to deal with that in the last few years, which has been really important. I don't feel like that. And, and you know, imposter syndrome is just thoughts, just thoughts that come into your head. Not feeling good enough is thoughts. It's not me as a person. So my first thought basically is kind of negative and then I just let that go now. So I'm a different person to where I was, say, eight, seven years ago. You know, I have, but I definitely had that. I completely understand what that is. I could talk about that for, I could write a book on that. How specifically did you deal with it? Because people that are listening to this, 
what, what's interesting for me, for me is imposter syndrome. We come up with words and then what we do, we manufacture something to create meaning for that. Now, I'm not suggesting that it doesn't exist, but that's always been the case in terms of that little negative voice that comes into you. How have you dealt with it? I uh, I do the best I can with it, you know. And sometimes it does. It's still it's there, but it doesn't define me anymore. And but it didn't define me then. I dealt with it. Um, it's just not a particularly nice feeling. But once again, it's a thought, so I let the thought go. Nowadays, I can just let the thought go, and I register the thought, and I think, okay, it's fine. Um, what I do do now is I call, I speak to people. I never used to talk to anyone about this kind of stuff. Now I'll pick the phone up. If I'm not having a good day and don't feel right about something, I ring people. I'm not, I'm not, I'm humble enough now to actually pick the phone up and say I'm struggling today. Well, I never did that. I never did that until I was 53. And then realised that you can't deal with stuff on your own sometimes. You need to have someone there or a group of people just to have a conversation. Because if you're giving oxygen to your negative thoughts, it gets worse and worse and worse. So I've learned to talk I've learned to speak to people. I've learned to pick the phone up. That's in a nutshell how I've dealt with it. Speaking about picking the phone up and now or speaking with people, you you've spoken openly about having an alcohol addiction. What was it about that addiction that let you know you had to seek help? I woke up one morning. I'd been out the night before. I was 53 years of age and I'd had enough. I was just sick and tired. I woke up anxious, bordering on depressed. I had a drink the night before, quite late. Um, and I just thought, I can't do this anymore. I've got to, this has got to stop. Don't want to feel the way I feel. And I came downstairs. I spoke to my wife. She made a phone call for me. That was seven and a half years ago. And I've been sober ever since. It's the best thing I've ever done. Credit to you. If you were to describe then the qualities of elite coaches and managers, what is it they possess? Get good players. See, you know, there's a lot of talk about, I mean, Pep talks about it all the time. Well, actually, it's my players. And I talk about it, and actually, it was my players. All I did was stick a bunch of players together and put a system together. And when then the staff dealt with the players, we all worked together, get good people. So the qualities that a good coach possesses is on the pitch. But obviously, he's got to be a man that's got empathy. He cares. He loves his players. You know, I hear this talk about managers that you don't need to, to like me, but you need to respect me. What right has anybody got to say well, you need to respect me? It's nonsense. I've got no right to say to you, you need to respect me. You, you, you do what you like. You know, I, I like people to love me as a manager and I, want, and I love my players. I want that environment. I don't call it a family because, listen, families fall out all the time. So I call it a bunch of people together who try to, to, to form something really special. And to try and form something in a football ground and a football pitch and an environment is really difficult. And it takes time. It takes time. If you look at what Manchester City are doing, they're signing the best players in the world, but they've got an environment and a culture. And I know they're scouts. They're just normal working men. 
who do their jobs. I know Liverpool, Liverpool's guys, they're working class guys who want to do well for the football club. And it's all about the club. It's all about the city. And it's about having a, it's about having a, uh, a something bigger than yourself. So you give, you give what, you know, forget the credit, just give, just give of yourself, give of service. And if you can give of service to, to a cause, find a cause, you know, and, and when we went up in for Reading, we had a cause, you know, we, I don't even know what that cause was, but it was a, a unity of a bunch of people. And to have that all the time is difficult. A lot of managers have dips. Um, and that's why Ferguson is incredible because he had that, what, 15 years of incredible success or how long it was. To sustain that is absolutely amazing. And that's what you look at. And you, but that's just keep turning the players over, turn the staff over, keep making changes and making brave decisions. And he did that, Alex. So when you've been making, you're creating cultures, they take time. Building trust takes time. Being a, I mean, a great intense sense of timing in selecting a player and bringing, or a coach, that is not something that you have a lot of time to do, but yet you, you burst, you're making a decision. How the heck do you know you made the right decision? I know we can say, well, it's down to performance, but we don't always get that right. How do you then work it? It's, I mean, we talk about this environment. How do, you, how do you actually create that environment? It's okay we get the right player, but how do you know you're getting it? We don't. I mean, you only find out when you're in the building. And that's the bottom line is you do all your homework, you find out about the player, you look at the player, you watch the player, you find out the staff member you, you, and you hope that you've got someone who comes in and it fits. You try to do as much due diligence as you can on the player and the staff member, whatever it looks like. But you never know. You never really know. You know, you don't until they're in the building. And sometimes players and staff, they surprise you how good they are. And sometimes they don't surprise you how good they are. And that's how it is. I think for me, trying to get the right staff is really, really important, really crucial. And if you can start with the staff and then you can move on to the players, but it's all the same because the staff are going to be in together. You see your staff members more than you see your family. You mentioned Steve Koppel earlier on. Who have been, as well as, as Steve, who have been the key influences in your coaching and management career? Terry Cooper. My favourite manager for me, he just let me, he made me feel a million dollars as a winger, typical winger, fragile. He made me feel special, Terry. Frank Burrows, when I was at Cardiff, he taught me how to win when I was 26. I'd left, I'd been at Arsenal, been at Fulham, been in Sweden, been at Oxford. I didn't know how to win football matches. I didn't know what the team looked like. I didn't know what the formation looked like. He taught me. And I took a lot of his stuff into my management about shape of the team, about the way that you conduct yourself when you're 1-0 up with five minutes to go, what's required, what needs to be done to win football matches. He taught me how to win. That was the year we went up with Cardiff. I'll be forever grateful to him. I played 45 out of 46 games that season. And um, he was a hard man, Frank, but a fair man. But he, I learned a lot from that man. I really did. And Steve, Steve was, I just like working with Steve. I love working with Steve. He was great in the dressing room. Man of, didn't say a lot. Um, but when he did, people listened. So while working in professional football, 
what have been the biggest lessons you learned about yourself? I need to look after myself. I need to be in a place where when I'm doing my job, make sure I'm aware that if I'm not in a good place, pick the phone up and reach out and talk to someone. Um, forget the professional football. It's a job. I know how to do my job. I've done every job in professional football, every job. I've coached kids. I've done the under-17s, under-19s, reserves. I've been head scout. I've been first team manager. I've been virtually player liaison officer. I've done every job. And sometimes things can get a bit much, especially as a manager. And I let, neglected my family at times. What I've learned is don't neglect your family. Make sure you're there for your family and get the balance right. So that's what I've learned. As a staff member, I don't care what your job is, or if you're the manager or you're under 17, get your balance of your, start, your, your, your home life and your work life correct to the best of your ability. Because you're there 24-7 doesn't mean that it's a good thing. In fact, it's the opposite. You know, you no longer manage in the top flight. What do you do to occupy your time? Oh, I've got plenty to do. Don't worry about that, David. I'm very busy. I've just been to a game now, watched some young lad play. I put one or two young kids into football teams. Um, but I scout myself from lower leagues, and I really love that. And I look after them a little bit. I do my presentation called Winning, Winning, Losing, Mental Health and Finding Balance about a lifetime in football, about finding balance and keep looking after your mental health. Uh, I'm doing the LMA mentoring course, uh, which I'll be mentoring managers at the end of next, at the start of next um, January, February, I finished the course. Um, I've got something else going on at the moment. I've got plenty going on. In fact, I've got so much going on at the moment. It's over quite, it can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, so yeah, I, I, I've got, I've got lots going on. The way that your character has been shaped from a, from a young boy to where you are now is created who you are, which sounds like you're very grounded in yourself in it sounds and you come across as your, I guess, at peace, mm. uh, an element of calmness in the, uh, we can see the steel in this as well, which, which in management you, you've got to have. Do you see yourself going back into management at any point or are you, are you put your boots up, you're just happy doing what you're doing? I, do you know what? I'm happy what I'm doing. And like I've said to you, I've never chased a job in my life, never applied for a job. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Something might happen next week. You never know in life what happens. And if it's right, I'll have a look at it. Um, but I, 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 I never, ever chased anything work-wise in my life. And, I'm 61 now. I'm not about to start. Final question for you, Brian. What's your greatest curiosity about coaching? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning when it comes to coaching, when it comes to managing? What gets me out of bed is if I can be helpful to anybody. That's what gets me out of bed. If someone needs a hand, I want to be there for them. If someone's struggling for whatever reason, doesn't have to be coaching. It can be whatever, life or professional. And if I can do them a good good turn, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And if I can do that, um, I'm happy. And what gets me out of bed in the morning? I've got a little grandchild now. I've got family around me, which I'm very blessed and grateful to have. Um, and I and the big thing for me 
is to make sure that I've got peace every day, a bit of peace, a bit of calm, a bit of tranquility, and work on that. And and uh, and if I've got that, I'm doing all right. Well, Brian, it's been it's been excellent to have you with us. We much appreciate your time, and uh, so thank you on behalf of David and myself, thank you, and the listeners for creating the time and space because we know you're extremely busy just to come on and and share share your wisdom <laughs> thanks very much appreciate it guys thank you yourselves thanks for tuning into the golders podcast today if you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed please do so your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.